Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Alt Centrism Central podcast. Today, our topic is going to be on the Liberty Movement. Uh, as always, I'm your host. I'm me. We have our other host here as well, Peyton. Hey, uh, what's up? And today we have a special guest to talk about and represent the Liberty Movement. Marcel, could you please introduce yourself? Those are big shoes you have me filling. Representing the whole Liberty Movement? Yes, I'm Marcel. I am a graduate student at George Mason University. Um, my ideology in whole is a Rothbardian, Proprietarian, Austro-Anarcho-Hoppian. See, I, I mean, how could you not represent the the entire liberty movement with with an, ide- with an ideological identity like that? You're perfect. Go on, go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh no, that was it. Oh, okay. All right. So, um, Peyton, you want to take it from here? Yeah, I'll take it from here. So, uh, for those who don't know who the, what the liberty movement is, essentially, uh, the liberty movement can be traced back as far as. It all started when Jesus Christ descended from Mount Sinai to Jesus liberty. It's a funny yeah, joke, but it's a funny joke. But there's a lot of theological talk about you know the origins of liberty, so it, it's kind of true. Yes. The liberty movement can go far, far, far back. Um, if we want to talk about the liberty movement in the United States specifically, um, the modern liberty movement has really started with things like the Libertarian Party and people like Ron Paul. I would say Ron Paul has probably been the biggest figure in the liberty, liberty movement and probably is still considered the face of the liberty movement. No one else has really taken that mantle. But um, essentially, it's kind of um, people who have, are usually ideological libertarians, um, typically anti-war, anti-state, and pro-free markets who come together for promoting individual liberty in the United States by getting either a lot of people have different strategies some people are all about let's get people elected let's focus on having people in academia and some people go the agorist route of counter economics um, tax evasion yeah tax basically tax evasion um, and as well like things like the Silk Road uh, which Joe you know a lot about because you're obsessed with Ross Ulbrich but I, yes, I am absolutely obsessed with him. I think he's a very handsome lad. Reigning as a warlord in Texas, right? What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, agorism uh, 100% works for that reason. And uh, Waco, Texas never happened, and Ruby Ridge never happened. So, you know, those things never happened as well. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I kind of wanted to pass it off to you, Marcel, and kind of. Uh, let you explain your how you came to the Liberty Movement and uh, what your goals are with it. Hmm. Well, my story is very normal and at the same time, I would say very abnormal. Um, so for me, being libertarian started as with many people in my age group with Ron Paul. So I basically thought I was a Democrat up until I was probably 13. Um, I grew up in New York. Um, it wasn't really a liberal household. It was a pretty apolitical household, I suppose. But I knew that I was against the war, um, even really when I was eight. Actually, one of my earliest distinct politics-related memories, you know, besides 9-11, I was six. But in terms of a discussion I had had was in, I guess I must have been in fourth grade, um, when Saddam Hussein had been executed, and people were in my school who, again, were like eight or nine years old, were celebrating it, saying they were happy that Saddam Hussein had died. And I said, who was Saddam Hussein and why are we happy that he died? 
and they said, oh, Saddam Hussein is the guy who did 9-11. And eight-year-old me, even then, is like, no, that definitely doesn't seem right. I thought Osama bin Laden did, like, I remember Osama bin Laden's name. I, was like, I thought Osama bin Laden did 9-11, and the other kids in my class were like, no, 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 it was definitely Saddam Hussein. And I thought to myself, that definitely does not sound right. Um, and then finally the teacher stepped in uh, for this is also, it's funny, one of my first political memories and one of my last moments of an authority figure taking my side in politics when the teacher stepped in and said, no, no, Marcel's right, Osama bin Laden was responsible for 9-11 and then the, the kids then asked, so why did we, you know, why did we kill Saddam exactly? And she probably said something about weapons of mass destruction, but I was too busy gloating about being right to remember what her answer was. That's fair enough. That's... It's, not, it's not often yeah. that you get a, an authority figure taking your side on things. Yeah. So that was so being anti-war was one of the first things that like awakened me to politics, and so I thought, well, the Democrats were the anti-war party because don't forget this is 2005. Uh, Barack Obama said he was going to pull us out of Iraq and you know dismantle Guantanamo. So for basically the entirety of Barack Obama's first term, I was prepubescent and identifying as a Democrat. Uh, but then I heard about Ron Paul, and Ron Paul politely informed me through countless YouTube videos. Uh, that no actually Barack Obama drone bombs people, he's expanding Guantanamo, etc. And he, so it's yeah. like a little convincing. It's like, oh, okay. He was a very We're effective war president in terms of the results that he got. Uh, Obama was pretty effective as commander in chief. What did you say? I didn't quite I said, get that. Repeat what you said. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, okay. Uh, I, all I said is that Obama was a pretty effective uh, war president. He was he was good at his job as commander in chief in terms of getting results. He was definitely, even though he ran on anti-war, that turned out to be something he was actually quite good at. An interesting interpretation. How exact? What what goal? What stated goals of Barack Obama did he accomplish during his time as president? Uh, Related to drawing down America's intervention What was the thing that Barack Obama said Foreign policy wise he was going to do That would make America less Interventionist that um, In terms of campaign promises Like I said I I'm not trying to disagree with you at all actually Maybe I I, um, I I misspoke a little bit But what I was saying is that even though he ran Quite a lot on uh, this anti-war platform Like you were saying it turned out that he was an effective military leader. Uh, like, as you said, when, you, when your teacher, you know, you were having that discussion about taking out um, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, that was uh, something that Obama was partially responsible for, and he made the call to do that. Um, and that, that's, that's, that's why I'm saying that he was a somewhat effective war president. I think I'm a little bit backwards. Uh, Obama killed Osama bin Laden. Saddam was killed under Bush. Yeah, sorry, my bad. But, uh, yeah, that, that that was that was all I was trying to say. Okay, I got you. Yeah, but um, oh, and then uh, oh, I can I might as well continue the journey. I realized I trailed off. So yeah, so it was Ron Paul that made me a libertarian, and then it was RNC twenty twelve where I had seen how the Republican Party, even though Ron Paul was never going to win the nomination. Party seemed to be committed to just ensuring that Ron Paul basically was unpersoned in a sort of CD style. Um, I think I think it was John Stewart from The Daily Show of all people who did a whole bit showing how he was systematically not mentioned in Fox News and things like that. Uh, and that, you know, seeing that happen, you know, the eyes have it moment uh, 
basically it didn't make me an anarchist as much as I saw that happen, and then a few people said, oh, you know, have you heard about anarcho-capitalism? I was like, what's that? And they said, taxation is theft. And then again, with very little convincing required, I became, all right, I guess taxation is theft, and I'm an anarchist now. Not a very glamorous story, I know. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's, it's not the ter- it's not a terrible story. It's definitely an interesting, uh, definitely coming from the perspective of moving Democrat then Ron Paul to anarcho-capitalism. I think it's a, I think it's actually a pretty typical, um, minus the anarcho-capitalism a little bit because, of course, the liberty movement isn't full of just anarcho-capitalists. But I think most people uh, were, you know, awakened to the liberty movement by Ron Paul if they were. You know, if most most people talk about that. It's like a comedian who's very big in the um, liberty movement, Dave Smith. He talked about this at a debate um, between him and the Libertarian Party chair, and he mentioned that. And I would say the vast majority of people in that audience, and the vast majority of people who will identify libertarian, whether party or ideological, will say the same thing. And I, I think it's one of the reasons it's a kind of interesting story, Marcel is that it, it reveals a little bit about your character as a person because your response to taxation as theft was, well, okay, yeah, I agree with you, which suggests uh, that you are more into deontologism th- rather than consequentialism. And without those big fancy words, I'm sure you already know this, but what it means for any of the viewers out there is basically just that you're a principled person and the ends don't always justify the means for you. Uh, for the most part, I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, for the most part, that's true. I've had certain people, especially, I don't know, as I've developed more and grown, and I've had to start justifying positions more, especially uh, as the kind of causal realist materialist that I am. People have said that I've become more utilitarian since the way I measure good and things like that is through, you know, human consumption, human welfare, human production. People say that by saying this, by appealing to you could call it productivism, but I might even call it consumptivism, that that's itself somehow utilitarian. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. But for the most part, I would consider myself a deontological libertarian. I find I find a lot of libertarians tend to be deontological if they're not if they're not like economics buffs. Um, a lot of libertarians tend to be actually economics buffs, especially here at George Mason. Um, but when they're not, when they're usually focusing on issues, when they're mostly focused on like war or the war on drugs, you know, usually it's about the principles rather than the consequences. Yeah, um, I think it was Rothbard that had the quote that nobody's going to die in the trenches for a 2% marginal tax reduction. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, and then if uh, I want to talk about more of uh, some more like experience-based things with the liberty movement and i know you've had a lot of run-ins with the mises institute and then other stuff you do with the liberty movement uh yes so this past summer i was a summer fellow at the mises institute it was a great time um, my first real interaction with them was going to mises u last year um mises u i'm just gonna make the pitch mises u is a week-long magical adventure where you go to libertarian hogwarts in Auburn, alabama and you get to see all the big names of the Mises Institute, and they uh, they lecture you. And, oh, and of course, of course, you get to talk to other libertarians 
in my, in my view, the very best kinds of libertarian, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, can I ask you a quick question about that? Um, since it's a place where like-minded people um, are able to discuss things with each other, how much disagreement did you find while you were there? Um, myself, I would say a lot. But in a, it certainly it, it was very in the weeds kind of disagreement. The kinds of disagreements that Catholics have with other Catholics, not the kind that Catholics have with atheists. So, for, so the kind of disagreements I had were on really, I don't say esoteric, but meaningless things. So, for example, as I mentioned before, I am an obligate materialist. I know a lot of people at the Mises Institute because somehow, for reasons that I've yet to fully pin down, there's a a lot of like Roman Catholics specifically. Who, who are not a fan of my view that there's nothing to the universe but matter, forces, energy, and waves. Um, similarly, um, being pro-life versus pro-choice, actually that's a big one, I would say. Um, that's a thing that a lot of people disagree with there. Um, those are the two, like, those are the two I can think of immediately. But in terms of disagreeing on, on anarchism versus minarchism, if there were any minarchists, they had the good sense not to show their faces. Um, so yeah, it was pretty much those kinds of philosophical things. That's so that's interesting. Both of those disagreements uh, can kind of be drawn along uh, religious lines, but yeah, interesting nonetheless. Uh, so that was the pitch for Libertarian Hogwarts Mises uh, Mises Institute. Yeah, I'm not going to become their uh, their outreach coordinator anytime soon. There are way better pitches you can get, but I promise it's a great experience, and you should look. Yeah, okay. And so, moving moving from that, um, I wanted to ask you, actually, about where do you think the Liberty Movement can go from here? You know, what is the path to victory, or is there no path to victory for the Liberty Movement? You know, what, 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 is your, what are your thoughts on that subject? Well, I can say for sure that there's nowhere for the Liberty Movement to go but up. Um, where can it really go from here? So we're, we're entering a weird phase right now where a lot of the momentum that the Libertarian Party had, well, the Libertarian Movement had, was lost really with Ron Paul's retirement. As well, the party seems to be, if not outright getting woke, it's definitely trying to shut off the people that it thinks are bad for its image. At the same time, the Republican Party, the kinds of Republicans that claim to be friendly to Libertarians unless they were Ron Paul and in his immediate circle were all kind of useless and are now being, they're not being purged from the party, but now that Trumpism is rising within the party, libertarians aren't making as easy inroads, except, you know, when Rand Paul can sort of like guide Trump into making certain non-interventions foreign policy decisions. So when Donald Trump says that he's going to pull out from Syria, Rand Paul is there on Twitter telling everybody how intelligent and wise and magnanimous and wealthy it is for him to do that. But, I don't know. I don't know how it can get better, but I can't imagine how it can get worse. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. My view of the Liberty Movement right now is specifically with the Libertarian Party. I think the Libertarian Party is in a very dismal state, but has a really good opportunity to do well in the next election, potentially. The point of the Libertarian Party, people forget, is not to win elections or to do well. In a way, the Libertarian Party is obsolete for its original purpose. The point of the party was simply to be basically a place for Libertarians to meet each other and sell magazine subscriptions. But now that we have the internet and we all have podcasts, 
that's no longer needed. The, the, like whenever it was gotten into the heads of the Libertarian Party, they could win elections. That's when things went downhill. You know, which is the Koch brother that we recently lost? I think it was David Koch. Like David Koch yeah. left the party of, like a few decades ago because it was part of the platform that we were going to abolish all taxation. Yeah, that's. Uh, not to, sorry, not to the entire party on the bus. I, I totally, I almost forgot. There is a, liber, a Libertarian Party Mises Caucus, yes. which is trying to bring the party back to its original roots of useful abstention, as opposed to useless. Abstention. Yeah, I well, actually, I agree. So, I agree with you that that's the role of the Libertarian Party, and that winning elections should not be our uh, our goal. Uh, but, but. The opportunity I'm talking about more is mainstream viewership. In 2016, and, and I, I am kind of going off of some points Dave Smith made in the Dave Smith versus Nicholas Sarwark debate, which I highly suggest people check out and watch that because it's a very if, if you even if you're not a member of the Liberty Movement, it's a very interesting debate to see about the the motivations of the Liberty Movement. Um, but Dave Smith was talking about this, that in 2016, we had an unprecedented opportunity of where we were getting national attention. Like, we were getting a, a one-hour-long CNN town hall, and because we put Gary Johnson and Bill Well, Gary Johnson, who is, no, not the brightest bulb in the world, in my opinion, and then Bill Weld, who is basically a neoconservative in disguise who was a lobbyist for the military industrial complex um we got an hour of them talking about donald trump and hillary clinton instead of here's what we stand for as libertarians here's your alternative to you know here's your alternative to the two parties and um and dave smith was really adamant about how like it doesn't matter if we're getting five percent of the vote or three percent of the vote um libertarian the libertarian party should be focusing on converting people which i think is the only effective strategy that any ideological movement can go by yeah although i even then i'm a little skeptical one of my earlier blackpill moments was michael malice put out a tweet showing that even its lowest level of support a military junta has been polling higher than the libertarian party so I'm not sure that too many people really have it in them to become libertarians. This, this is a little bit of, a, uh, of an unpopular view, but, well, among libertarians anyway, that a lot of people who are afraid of libertarianism, it's kind of rational for them to be so. I mean, it's not as though the problem is they haven't heard of it. They've heard of it. They know what it entails, the level of responsibility, the decision-making that it entails. And they decide upon seeing that, you know, this isn't for me. I, I enjoy having the government take care of me. I, I'd say that's somewhat true for a lot of people, but I also think that, like, in a sense, you're, you're never going to get a ton of people to be hardcore, like, anarcho-capitalists. You're never going to get even even a plurality of people to, to be that much, you know. Um, but you can at least get them more towards, especially on certain issues, towards being less for certain policies especially i think the most one of the most effective things we do is either on the drug war or the anti-war stuff I, oh yes yeah, for sure there are libertarian, popu like, there are libertarian populist strategies 
but but those aren't ways to get people to the full package you know don't tread on me libertarianism as much as just well, appealing to their existing sensibilities to get them to stop wanting to bomb arab countries you know because if you do the refugees come to your country like that's the level at which we basically have to operate if we want to reach the common person i i think what you i think what you guys are kind of getting at is the problem with political parties in general because as you start to gain more and more popularity the party platform has to sacrifice certain ideas to promote others because there's only so much that you can actually get done and there's only so much that people will agree upon so to expand a party i think is a little bit different uh, than the movement itself and I mean, the party is probably going to be focused only on or I think should only be focused on getting people in office to create change because that's what a political party is. But the libertarian movement or the liberty movement in general, um, it, I, which I mean, a lot of it, the people in the movement would pro could pro probably be part of the libertarian party as well. I think it's their job to uh, go and talk to people and convince them. Um, but yeah, just it's it's a problem with political parties in general. The, the amount of um, simplicity that you have to have and the amount of other beliefs that you have to give up to uh, bring other people into the circle and get things done. Yes. And, and part of the problem also is that because for libertarians, well, for, for, for good libertarians who agree with me, it revolves around of an ethical precept that is the net, that it, it, to compromise on it, it it's, it's, a, it's the keystone in a way that I think a lot of other philosophies don't have this one linchpin belief where if you pull it out, the whole thing falls apart. And so the kind of things that we need to compromise on is well, if we compromise on that, then we're compromising on the nap. If we compromise on the nap, that's really all we have. And so that, that makes the, the whole party really resistant. And we kind of just see it. And that once libertarians start, and, and yeah, we see the horror stories in front of our eyes because you know, as soon as any libertarian starts saying, maybe we don't need the nap, the next thing you know, now, the slippery slope is is covered in vegetable oil because they're like and why don't we have you know um a progressive income tax and also bake the cake like, well yeah you're definitely seeing that with the libertarian party i mean um there are more i'm going to call them left libertarians even though it's a little inaccurate to call them that because they're still like very very close to free market i'd say more of the people who are like chicago school more freedmen libertarians um, you know, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, as the meme goes, um, they're openly accepting more libertarian socialists and more, like, they, they're actively advocating it and trying to push out people like the Mises Caucus, um, and, and then anybody who would dare vote for a Republican like Ron Paul or Rand Paul or Thomas Massey because, you know, they're not true libertarians, they're not voting for our libertarian candidates, um, and you're, de you're definitely seeing that. That's part of the problem with the party trying to trying to play this electoral politics game, and why the Libertarian Party, if it, if it's ever going to do anything beneficial for the Liberty Movement, should be more of like you said, a group a group for Libertarians to meet, or even just spread the message more. Because like I think John McAfee has an interesting it, it's an interesting message. Do I think it's going to work or do anything? Not really. But his message is more, you know, self-empowerment by in instead of voting for him for president, you vote for yourself. It's 
Which is an, it, it, at least an interesting idea to open up people to the ideas. I don't think it's gonna work, but it's at least something. There's something about- there's something quintessentially libertarian about that proposal. It's probably not gonna work, but I think it would be interesting if we all just voted for ourselves this year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's pretty much most libertarian proposals is, I don't think this will work, but it would be really well, Wouldn't it be cool, like... That would that would be kind of funny. That would that would that would be a great IRL meme. Um, but real quick, before anybody else says something, I just think it's important that we distinguish between libertarian with a capital L and libertarian with a lowercase L, and distinguish between the ideology and the party, just that it's easier to have these conversations. That's all. Yeah, for those for those who don't know, like libertarianism and the liberty movement as whole, as I kind of explained, is about individual. Um, individual liberty, but really what, what libertarianism can be boiled down to on an ideological sense is more of wary of state power or does not believe in the, the use of state force or violence. Um, yeah, and, and or varying degrees, all the way from just like I'm a Republican who thinks we should to uh, no government at all. Yeah, like at, at, the, at the very least, uh, libertarian with a lowercase l would advocate for the protection and preservation of natural rights. That's a good way. Sure, or, or I would say if you, if you don't want to boil down libertarianism to the map, even though you should, uh, you could say that libertarianism is anti-war, anti-state, pro-market. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you should... In, in, if I'm, and if I'm being even more charitable, I'd say in decreasing levels of importance. So if, if somehow you're not pro-market, but you must be a libertarian, I would say fine. But I would say it's impossible to be pro-war and be a libertarian. Oh, yeah, I would agree entirely. Which, uh, interestingly enough, uh, the LP, Libertarian Party chair, um, doesn't seem to be anti-war and the vice president show candidate wasn't anti-war either. Well, as soon, as, soon as, as, yeah. as, as soon as you get into politics, as soon as you get into politics, go ahead, Peyton, sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Which brings in the distinction of the Libertarian Party. Now, the Libertarian Party, as a general rule, is the whole Gary Johnson meme of fiscally conservative but socially liberal, which just doesn't make any sense, um, and isn't it really a policy position at all doesn't really describe what you're for but regardless of my feelings on it that's usually the way people who are in the libertarian party describe themselves you'll see people who are different though you'll see you know i talked about it a bit but the caucus and the mises caucus are two who don't really fit into that narrative but as the party seems to be going now um those liberal fiscally conservative people who, who identify libertarianism as that seem to be moving towards allowing these libertarian socialists so we, they could kick out people like the Mises caucus. I would go so further. And the thing about this basically conservative socially liberal thing is not that it's, it's some kind of deception. It's more as though libertarians themselves really kind of fooled ourselves on what socially liberal meant. So there was this, there was the, the libertarian motto, not even a motto, I guess a slogan on gay marriage that we had for, for a good while, which is along the lines of, you know, we're not asking you to cater the wedding, we're just asking, you, know, you don't need to cater the reception, we're just asking you to tolerate the wedding, 
And to us, that was what being culturally liberal meant. As it turns out, we were wrong and you do need to cater the perception. So that's really where that comes from. But if being socially liberal really was about, you know, not taking any part about in what's going on between two adults in the bedroom and things like that, then most libertarians, even the ones who, who you know, call themselves, you know, like the Mises caucus people who people say, oh, you know, these are the conservative libertarians. They're not even really conservative in the sense that they actually care. It's more as though we'd rather not have an opinion, but if you're going to force us to have an opinion, it might as well be what we want, right? Yeah, of course. And I mean, that, that kind of very much accurately describes this whole situation because, um, I mean, that's that's kind of why I said they were vague and that they, they didn't really describe anything because like fiscally conservative too, I mean, that can mean a lot of things. I mean, by that definition, you know, Mark Sanford is a pretty good libertarian, even though he's got some pretty anti-libertarian policies, even though I, out of actually the Republicans who are currently running, I'll just say this, that uh, if I have to pick one, it's Mark Sanford, but I mean, he, at least he's the one who is railing against, um, Know, the debt and deficit seems to be the only candidate talking about that but um in a, in a I, kind I, of conspiratorial I, way i don't think you're gonna get elected if you talk about that i mean yeah no the vast majority of actually care about our federal debt they'll be shocked for a second and then, then they'll move on the attention span of the average american is pretty short the, the only person in america that will ever actually care about the sovereign debt will be when we get a king no other human being will care this is this is largely true because i mean who is the debt really tied to i mean in, in all honesty the taxpayers who is it i mean is it though i mean have we been paying higher taxes because the debt has increased no i mean, I mean we, we, so we we need to cover interest on the bond so yeah, says, yeah. we do have I a mean, reputation rule though taxes have been at least the income tax has been decreasing we do have a reputation for paying back the principal to countries um that give us loans to put onto our national budget uh, but we almost never pay back the interest on it and we're we're taking more loans than we can pay back so even though we do eventually pay them back, it's just growing because we can't pay it back as much as we're getting money. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Otherwise, I mean, if, if we didn't pay at all, we'd be in a situation uh, like uh, pre-World War II uh, Weimar Republic Germany, and that's not a situation that anybody wants to be in. Well, we all know how that ended. Oh, yeah. But, uh... <laughs> Oh, also, um, I just want to I want to touch on this a few minutes ago real quick. The problem with the Libertarian Party and being anti-war, I think, is that it, when you get more and more involved in politics, what it boils down to is that political figures, their only source of power comes from um, uh, employing violence against people. So if you're going to take an anti-war position, you're basically just a talking head on a stick and you're hoping that somebody's going to notice you. And I, I think once you get into politics, so if you're part of the liberty movement, that's, that's fine because uh, your job is just you know talking to people anyway. But if you're into politics, if you're a, an elected official, a representative, it is very difficult, I think, to be anti-war because otherwise you might be ineffective uh, to a certain degree. 
yes. I mean, America's had a history of having one or two anti-war representatives or maybe one anti-war senator at a time. And most of them, most Americans have never heard of. Although I'll plug a book, um, We Who Dared to Say No to War is a book compiled by Tom Woods and I think it's Murray Polner compiling some of these moments. But the very fact that, you know, the big speeches fit into a single book that's not even particularly large. Yeah, the, the, the better place for anti-war people is just standing outside on the step shouting. That's really, that's apparently where we belong. <laughs> oh, man. I also endorse reading this book. I'm very pessimistic. I realize I've just been saying some real downer after downer. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, am no, no, no. I do think we'll win eventually. I don't know how, but I, 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 I promise, be a libertarian. It's actually very enjoyable. Well, I kind of wanted to ask you, of, of the three, you know, kind of strategies I gave, which one do you think is going to be the most effective or is currently the most effective? Or are you going to talk about, are you going to talk about your three-step plan now? My three-step plan? Oh, I'm not going to talk about my three-step plan. Okay. All right. All right. So what are the strategies? Winning elections, what and what? Winning elections, um, education through, like, academia. So basically the, the George Mason tactic and the Mises Institute tactic or agorism. I'm just, I'm interested in which, which of those three do you think is the most effective? Um, I guess, I guess the education one. I guess just a long march of the institutions. I mean, I don't think that... So some people may object to saying that libertarianism is a right-wing philosophy, but they're not on the podcast, and I am. So libertarianism is a right-wing philosophy, and it's kind of hard to achieve right-wing goals and left-wing strategies. But if anything is going to work, aside from, you know, the libertarian popular strategy, which doesn't work persistently, right? You can kind of have, I think it's telling that the most successful populist anti-war movement that we had was the, you know, the American First Committee. And, you know, you had some real, like, respectable plutocrats, you know, the Charles Lindberghs of the world, you know, join it. And then as soon as Pearl Harbor happened, they all just left. They just threw in a towel immediately, almost no resistance. So that shows, I think, the kind of long-lasting effects that is none that um, libertarian populist strategies can have. I think they can work maybe to stop a specific thing, right? To stop a specific war. But I don't think they can really work to getting us to be more libertarian. So if we're just looking at proven successes of... Um, if not, you know, making ANCAP paradises, at least making the world more libertarian, yeah, it's been, you know, academics becoming unelected bureaucrats, and, you know, when the Soviet Union falls, or when the United States topples this government or that government, and then it's like, we're restructuring your whole economy, and we're privatizing everything, so let's get some interns from Cato to supervise that. <laughs> yeah. This is kind of what happened in Iraq, uh, it's happened in, you know, in the Soviet Union, things like that. So I guess that's what works if I, if I really have to look around. Yeah, no, it, it, and, you know, I'm not someone who claims to know the strategy either. I think at this point, uh, a libertarian, you know, state, not state, um, you know, nation is to happen. Um, it's likely to happen because it took advantage of some ongoing conflict like within that nation so like yeah. in the context of the united states let's say um uh you know it's been mentioned recently that you know they would 
if the Democrats did a buyback program, there'd be a civil war. Let's say, let's or or Trump gets impeached, there'd be a civil war. Nuclear let's war. That as a pos- as a, I don't think it would be nuclear war. There's. I don't think it would be end of civilization so nuclear war, but I think it's serious. Order would have to arise, I think, opportunistically. Like, it's not going to happen by us claiming from the start that we're libertarian. It's going to happen when, you know, a bunch of guys who maybe... We're going to just fill in the gaps with someone else's philosophy, I think. It's going to be some party or group that comes to power that you know, doesn't care about economics and needs some advisors. So much has been made, even of... So, oh, a, a good example is in Brazil, right? Fire Bolsonaro who uh, didn't really, he seemed like he didn't even really expect to win until near the very end of his campaign. And so it ended up being that most of his economic, like people he had appointed these economic positions were all libertarians who had read, you know, Mises and Hayek and things like that. So I think that's really where it's going to be. As, as a history buff, and I guess a little bit as a podcast host, um, I, have, I have some interesting opinions on how people or movements can uh, quote unquote if we're looking back at, say, the American Revolution, uh, I'd say the primary strategy that won that one, uh, one of Peyton's three strategies that he mentioned was agorism. But it can't be like today's agorism where Antifa just goes and breaks things in the streets. And with the American Revolutionary War, it was a very targeted, targeted specific kind of agorism. People were upset with taxes and the way that um, the, the British were quartered in people's homes and yes. things like that. I agree, and in fact, that's even that's frankly a better object lesson than the America First Committee example I gave, where you know uh, you had some people who who were ostensibly libertarian who agitated outrage against a few specific grievances, and then once passion settled down, uh, they all looked around and said, uh, "Let's have, let's pass an excise tax on whiskey," and that was that was just that. Yeah, um, but the, and then the other strategy strategy that I think would work quite well, and I, I'm not sure if anybody's going to agree with me here on this one, but as a podcast host and, I don't know, just over the last few years, my experience in talking to people uh, about politics, I found that the best way to convince people that they are wrong is actually to agree with them because people like to deny logical arguments and emotional arguments especially because of the ego and this whole uh, team identity that we build around political parties and identities. So the best way actually to convince people is to subtly agree with them and get to the bottom of try to understand what they believe, why they believe it, and then talk with them about it and say, well, the problem is with this, or if you want, if you really want to do that, why not do this? And I think even though that's a much more difficult route, it takes a lot more time. I think it's a very effective one. Sure. For some people, I would say yes. Um, but it only works if people actually share your goals. But since a lot of people, you know, they, they may claim to have goals that are not what they actually have, or they have goals that are totally cross purposes to yours. So in my case, if somebody says that their goal is to bring about a state of economic equality, I, I'm not, I can't, it may be a great test of my abilities, I suppose, but I can't really sit down with them and say, well, I think the best way to achieve a state of like equal distribution of goods and services would be through totally free markets. Well, right, right. But so in, in that situation, what I would do is I would sit down with them and have a conversation and I would try to uh, help them get to the bottom of what that actually means, how they would do it. And then eventually you might start to see either your ideology unravel or theirs. Um, I, I don't think that there's just this brick wall always that people are, aren't going to agree 
um, but I think it, it would take a lot. And, and I've had these conversations with with many of my friends, and it takes a long time. But eventually, uh, you you grow closer because you, you start to realize that your ideas aren't so different. At, at least that's been my experience. But maybe your experience has been a little bit different. Yeah, my experiences have not been that um, that uplifting on that front. Often, I those yeah that kind of strategy maybe works on a few people but on the vast majority of people i say i would say no and really yes only for people that i consider my friends who i have the kind of time and, and semi-commitment to having multiple conversations with them although actually i'll be honest when you first were just we were first describing this idea i read it a totally different way of disagreeing with them poorly and uh, that is agreeing with them but in a bad way to just get them to see the logic uh, because i've had a few conversations with people where in, in a way, both to test my abilities or just to advance some other concepts, I would relax certain constraints on ideology. And then I would end up having people make arguments against not even anarchism, but just very normal beliefs, you know, but as if they were arguing against anarchism. So if I can be more specific about it. So I was once having a discussion about um, like where justice comes from. And I had, and the example I gave was how the something is a crime because there's a victim so there's no victim there's no crime and so if the victim or their next of kin doesn't want to press charges it wouldn't necessarily be right to to circumvent their wishes you may disagree and i there were good arguments on the other side of this but what ended up happening was i had presupposed um, a sort of thomas hobbes leviathan state where um you had an absolute king and he had the authority and you know, he had guards and taxes and he the crimes were punished with basically floggings were death, so there were no prisons. Just so I can establish the principle, it wasn't even important to the scenario. But I noticed as I was describing the scenario, the person was pushing back against this idea of a state whose only weapons were basically bullets and whips. And then he started asking me these questions like, well, huh? what gives this king the right, you know, to do this to people? Uh, why, how is he paying for this? I was like, what, what do you mean, how is he, you, you, with taxes? I'm not, and I asked him, like, am I making some weird anarchist argument right now? And he said, no, but, you know, um, what if, what if I'm a little, like, what if people rise up against this king? Like, what if there's, um, what if there's a raider gang? They have more guns and more money and more, I was like, are you trying to hit me with a local warlord problem? But with a king? I don't understand what's happening here. And, and so that was a close I'd ever had, I'd ever had to someone effectively trying to make anarchist arguments against me, seemingly because since I view the state as naked violence and was just trying to use it, people are saying, oh, whoa, 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 I actually don't like the state like that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly a tactic you can use, but I think that's a lot more difficult to uh, to set up. Um, I, think, I, I guess, this, I mean, that's that's kind of the beauty of uh, the podcast that, that we do. And Marcel, I know you have a podcast and I'm sure you'd love to plug it, but you get to have that time to kind of sit down and kind of understand what and why people believe what they do. Oh yes, yeah. I might as well take that opportunity. Uh, my podcast is called The Moral Minority Podcast. We are on Spotify, iTunes, and Spreaker. I'm sure that Peyton will post a link to it in the show notes. I will. I, I have much more chemistry with my co-host Dan than I do have with you guys. So again, as always, I'm, I'm, it's more exciting in the, the actual product. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get it, but... Um, um, I was going to actually kind of back up Marcel's point that there are some people that I think you just won't convince um, ever and it's because you have these very principal differences 
and um, it's very hard. To, it's very hard to convert someone who's on an extreme with very different principles. It's very easy to get people who are more middle of the road. Um, you know, people who are unsure. You know, people who are, you know, just just there. But like in my in my experience, though, really extremes are hard to convert. Kind of need that uh that's 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 actually major event to happen rather than like with me because i came from the left wing extreme and then went into a right wing extreme and then mellowed out but that was all of that took place in like major key turning points in my life they, they corresponded with that that's so, that, that's kind of funny to be honest because i i've had kind of the opposite experience yeah uh, peyton you know you know jackson i'm not gonna mention his last name because I, I don't want to like yeah, dox him or anything but I, I've actually found that I have I, I have more in common, and I, I can have better conversations with Jackson, even though he's a, f a far left communist, self-proclaimed, than I, I have with moderate uh, Republicans sometimes. And I, I think the difference there is because we can relate to each other as principled people, but some some people some people are just part of the tribe. They follow it because their friends or parents do, and they will never, ever give up on that because it's part of their ego and it's part of their identity. And that's the people that I have a really hard time getting through to. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually, I've had somewhat similar experience where not about um, making them libertarian, that's not going to work, but in terms of the kind of interactions I have, I definitely have a lot of positive interactions with what I'm starting to call the United Front Against Trotsky, which is basically <laughs> at, different, at four corners of the political compass you know with like these really hardcore far left like leninists or sometimes even stalinists or like on the, on the authoritarian right these sort of paleo-conservatives that kind like i guess it's a, it must be a personality thing where with them i can have much more fruitful conversations than yes people who are much closer it's, especially with people who are like you know really far on the left it's usually, usually anti-war since since i'm known to have like being anti-war is my single issue for those who are, for the people who are not so totally drunk on their ideology where identifying as libertarian makes me toxic, mm -hmm. I can have good anti-war conversations. Yeah, and, and you know, oh, just I, just to like clarify, I don't mean that like I could totally convince Jackson of anything, but I just mean that it was easier to relate to him about certain things than say other people. Um, no, okay, so I don't I don't disagree with that other. But when it comes to converting people, I think it's the opposite. Like if you're going to talk about anybody coming to your side or. Um, pretty much a, a futile effort with people like that in my in my experience but i i will agree like the extremes are the people who i have the most fruitful conversations with they uh, they always have like the most interesting ideas too oh, it occurs to me also that i said something that might require some explanation for some members of your audience so the reason i call it the united front against trotsky is because um first a lot of people on the right and even for for um for for like lenders and Stalinists. Uh, neoconservatism, you know, like Bush Reaganism, this kind of interventionist um, republicanism is identified as an offshoot of like Trotskyism for a variety of historical reasons, basically. And so that's why I say it's a united front against Trotsky. Just wanted to lay that out. Yeah, no, uh, I actually kind of got what you Stalin's problems with Trotsky were a bit more direct. Yeah. And you solved yeah. them in a far more direct. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yep. He did solve it in a really what, Was he? What, he was poisoned, wasn't he? Uh, yes, he, I, he died of iron poisoning, like oh a severe God. overdose in the back of his skull. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, Joe, I don't think you heard that last part. 
in the back of his skull. No, yeah, I did hear that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh wait, wait. Am I am I being dumb? Was is that just a bullet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Never mind. I'm dumb. That there it is. You, you heard it first. I recently sold too. That like it turns out some Mexican cop was holding on to it. And then, like, his granddaughter just now um, sold it. Trotsky's grandson tried to, like, have her donate it to a museum. And then she said, which was a very, like, the best way to bet on the grandson of a dead communist. Is like, actually, I want to make some money off of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but kind of going back to what we were talking about, but, like, sometimes I, I just think when you have fundamental disagreements with people on principle, like, if you... For example, not sharing a belief in property, I think, creates a lot of conflict between people. Like, you can have these conversations with them, but living with them in a society and being, you know, let's say neighbors, um, it's a little harder. I, I wonder how. So you do live in the society. I wonder how. I wonder if they would if they would like change their beliefs. If say you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in private property, and you say, okay, well, give me your clothes. It was made by the well, public. It was it was manufactured by us. So give it to me. Property. Yeah, they make they make this distinction of the, their argument is that they try to distinguish private for, versus um, personal property and that private you can make capital off of. But I mean, like, well, even still, their their argument doesn't make much sense because of what I just said. Your clothes are manufactured by the public, therefore they are the fruits of my labor. Give it to me. Uh, that's. Yeah, that's technically true, but also the way I usually go about routing this argument is that because the definition is of according to them is anything you can make with capital. I mean, you can make, you can get accumulate capital from pretty much anything. You know, yeah, your the house, best way right cars. I think cars are the best way because oh, a yeah, car yeah, ostensibly yeah. personal property, but then you use it as a taxi and now even your that, house, yeah, that's you interesting. Can use your house to allow people to stay in it or run a you can literally run a business out of it yeah that's true but yeah ignoring the the logical fallacies of a lot of communists um you know i just i just think that there it's hard to convince people because even presenting things like that like i recently had a debate with an anarcho-communist and i mentioned that this, that there is no distinction between public or uh, private and um, personal property because you can do this with accumulation of capital you kind of just ignore that you kind of just try to tr move the debate somewhere else so another fun one is um, the idea of landlords as rent seekers but then if you consider that if you, since, you can run a, since you can run a business out of a rental property by the logic that makes by the same logic that makes the capitalist the exporter of the worker because the capitalist pays a rental price to the worker, but then keeps the full profit value of his labor. A capitalist, likewise, pays a rental price to the landowner, but maintains that same full value. So can a landlord be exploited? Just in, just generally, yes. I mean, the, the factory itself being rented is just as much being rented by the capitalist as the worker, but yet a lot of communists are really reluctant to say that a landlord can be anything but the ultimate villain of the story. I mean, I mean, really, all it takes is just the idea of, oops, I accidentally broke a light bulb, Mr. Landlord, you gotta fix that. And, and there you go, your, your, your case is proven. Your point is proven. 
Uh, I, I, I mean, you could easily, very easily exploit the landlord. Yeah, no, you could definitely yeah. do that. If we just sat around thinking of ways we've owned the communists, I think this podcast would be pretty boring. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 if, if, if we went in that direction of just, you know, let's own Here's some new clever this. way I found to dance on Marks. Well, uh, I, I, run, I run into this a lot about people asking what are good arguments against communists, so... Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what you're talking about. Like a daily or weekly podcast dedicated entirely to attacking Paul Kirkman's New York Times column. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm allowed to do that because I just plugged Tom Woods' book 20 minutes ago, so I'm allowed to make fun of his podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, he'll get a he'll get a link just just so we can uh, promo code, code, code Woods. Get a discount. Woods, get a discount. <laughs> The of the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something, something, uh, Harry's Razors. <laughs> <laughs> but um, to kind of move into that, uh, I guess we can move kind of into a, a closing um, on the episode. But for the Liberty Movement, where do you where do you personally see it going in the next few years? How do you think 2020 will affect it? Will the Liberty Movement effect in 2020 or is it kind of just uh, another game of the Republicans and Democrats shifting power? Um, so I'm not even sure who the Libertarian Party is going to put up. I know the party is trying to put up Justin Amash, America's self-destructing Palestinian legislature. That is politically self-destructing Palestinian legislator. Um, I don't know how that's going to really work because Justin Amash seems not to be you know, ready to, to actually run. He, he said he's not interested, actually, I'm pretty yeah. sure. I mean, he, he's basically going to lose his seat. So, um, I guess we better we don't run anyone, I guess. I mean, the thing about the Libertarian Party also is that it's the most undemocratic um, primary process. It's the most insider-centric, so it's not like with the Republicans where when they have a humiliating loss with Mitt Romney, you know, there's a moment of soul-searching, and then, you know, there's this Trumpian coup. That can't really happen with the Libertarian Party. This is true. Uh... So, the movement will always exist, right? Um, we're not gonna, I mean, the Libertarian Party, the Libertarian Movement has lost some members from time to time. Some of them become communists, some of them become other things, but there's still a like, <laughs> solid core that sticks around. Other things. Yeah, so... You want to talk about Chris Cantwell for a second? No. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, so, we're still going to be around. There's still more libertarians now than there were ten years ago, right? You know, you know basically, what happens the Liberty Movement basically had a bubble. Like, 2012 was basically when the bubble burst. But we're still on an upward growth path. How we'll win, I don't know. I'm not saying we're going to have some kind of final victory in the end, but it can't get worse. And I think for us, it will get better. Uh, I'm trying to remember whose quote it was. The future will be better tomorrow. Especially if we repeal the 20th century, of course. Which is now my favorite rock. No, so I didn't hear anything about uh, peel the 20th century that it'll happen oh it's your uh, favorite Rothbard yeah it's my favorite Rothbard quote now um, for those who don't know in the audience because a few people we, we've mentioned him 
briefly before, but Murray Rothbard is one of the leading economists in the Austrian School of Economics, which is really popular um, with libertarianism, especially the Mises type people, um, because the Mises Institute is named after Lobotnikov, who was again another big Austrian economist. But... Not only did you butcher his name, but your voice cut out Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> I always broke his name. Like, it was that the Discord itself didn't want to hear you finish it. <laughs> Discord was trying to save me some, uh, some embarrassment. But, um, yeah. So, um, if that's all, uh, thank you again, Marcel, for coming on. Uh, happy to be on. Let, let's. Party questions? No, yeah. Let's let's just go into like some brief closing statements. If anybody has some, uh, yes. Marcel can have the last word. Peyton, do you have any closing statements? Anything you didn't get to say you want to get off your chest? Um, the liberty movement is too lazy, and that's their biggest problem. That's about. <laughs> wow. It. All right. Kind of like Hillary Clinton, basket of deplorables. Telling them. <laughs> All right. I mean, you could turn it around in a positive way and say, you know, just uh, we, we got to work harder. Say we instead of you. Um, yeah. But I don't know. As for me, closing statements, I think that I think of the liberty movement as not something very recent. I think of it going back a long, long ways. Um, for those of you who don't know, I am somewhat kind of a little bit more conspiratorial than others. I think that financial influences have influenced the um, the liberty movement significantly in the past 300 years especially. But I'm, I'm not going to get into that in my closing statement. All I'm going to say is, for the, for the future of the liberty movement, I guess what I would like to see is, I would like to see an interest uh, in the people of our generation at least, in at least discussing it, at least being open to different ideas. Uh, what we see now, you know, is a lot of people uh, being secluded in these echo chambers on the internet. Uh, I'm sure that a anybody who has ever been on Discord knows what it's like to be in the average political Discord server and just, you know, you have a debate for hours with somebody, and at the end of it, nothing has changed. Both of you are just very angry. I, I so I guess what I would just like to see for the Liberty Movement is I would like to see that people will be open to different ideas because even within the Liberty Movement, people have uh, people have different ideas about how things should be, and I think if we're going to move forward, if the Liberty Movement is to move forward as one cohesive group and actually do something significant, I think that we don't all need to agree, but we all have to be on the same page at least, and we have to know you know, one big core thing. What do we want to accomplish? Um, and yeah, that that's about all I have to say about the Liberty Movement. Marcel, last word uh, yes, goes for you, I bud. Agree. Uh, ironically, the Libertarian Party, this anarcho-individualist group, is in need of like a strong central unifying vision. Otherwise, we kind of flounder about uselessly, not knowing, not, even, not only not knowing what to do, but seemingly not even knowing what we're for. Um, Ron Paul was that, but not anymore. It used to be Murray Rothbard, at least you know my ever in, in my in the lineage I follow anyway. So I don't know who it'll be in the future, but I hope that the thing it is is an end to war. I think that's a continued. I don't want to say it's a continued winner. America has been at war nonstop, but it's a good it's a good recruiter and it gets the right people on board, and then we can filter them out later. 
All right. Yeah, uh, and with that, right before we end the episode, I just want to say that the link to Marcel's podcast is on your screen. It's in the information bubble. It's in the description. It's going to be on your screen again a second time. Uh, we're going to put it everywhere uh, because we really appreciate you coming on to talk with us today, Marcel. As always, happy to be here. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a great night.